0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Our uh, journey through Isaiah has brought us to chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44 this morning. I will not sing verse 6. I will not sing any of these verses. We've got 28 verses to cover. One of the most remarkable chapters in all the Bible, all right? And let me know if you hear some cutting out. We had some cutting out last hour. I changed a headpiece, and if we have more cutting out this hour, we need to know about it, so we'll find out. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of the water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, Belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. All right, that's our first five verses in the first section that we'll handle as a unit. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to open the eyes of our understanding, to humble us under the authority of doctrine, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace, thankful for the blessings of grace. Father, not one of us deserves to be here today. Not one of us has earned or deserved anything other than the lake of fire. But Father, in your grace, your Son took our place on the cross. And because he accepted our sins, we receive his righteousness. Father, thank you for salvation in Christ. Thank you for the blessings we have to not only get saved, to have eternal life, but to then come together in the name of Christ, to come together as a church body, to be knit together in love, one with another, to be blessed by the Word of God, to shape our thinking. Father, thank you for the shaping of thinking that takes place as your Word is ministered. Might it shape us today. There's so much of this world that needs to be flushed from our thoughts. Father, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus and use the message today as a part of your gracious work. I thank you, Father, for Isaiah. I thank you for this message. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right. There are some people I could name that read the last chapter of the book first and completely ruin the entire book, in my view, based upon their uh, methodology and practice. But I'm going to replicate that here this morning by turning to verse 28. Did you hear something? Oh, I got the wrong slideshow. You don't want to do Galatians. We want to do Isaiah. Thank you. I would have done the wrong... uh, (laughs) Isaiah. Yes, you are blessed by a glimpse of paradise on earth. The birthplace of... uh, So many greats, including Gary Larson and uh, Bruce Lee, and many others that I have so much in common with. All right. Isaiah chapter 44. Thank you. Verses 1 through 5, Jeshurun should not fear, as the promises of Yahweh guarantee her millennial blessings. Jeshurun should not fear. Jeshurun is a poetic name for Israel, and we'll discuss that here in a moment. No fear when you know what's coming up. Okay? Now, if you don't have divine viewpoint, there's a lot of things to be fearful over. You might look at a stock market crash or something happening on Friday and wonder what's in store. All right? God is in charge, and that's the best part. And so we don't fear what's coming in the coming days or even what's coming after that because we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And uh, we have applications to make ourselves. Now, I'm going to give you some points to study here in these first five verses, but let me, let me replicate the... Uh, into the chapter reading first. Let's look at verse 28. One of the reasons why this is such an extraordinary chapter, this is one of the chapters that the skeptics point to to say, well, this couldn't have been written when it was written. It must have been written later. We have to have two Isaiah authors. We have to have three Isaiah authors. Because no way in the 7th century BC could uh, anyone have named Cyrus by name. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will, he will perform all my desire. And he, <clears throat> he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now, we know through history, we know through the Old Testament record, we know through the New Testament record, and of course, secular history after the fact, that it was indeed Cyrus. It was the Persians that allowed for Israel to return, that the northern kingdom was swept away by the Assyrians 150 years after that, the southern kingdom was swept away by the Babylonians, and we understand the history from Assyria to Babylonia to Persia that it was the Persian Empire that conquered the Babylonians that then permitted for Israel to return. King Cyrus is very famous as far as history is concerned and in the biblical record for being the tool, the Gentile tool, that Yahweh used to allow Israel to return to their land. And because this is so accurate, and because this is so prophetic, and mentioning this king by name, uh, certain folks have dismissed it as being real and said, well, this must have been written after the fact. And they come up with these theories and these plans and these ideas that somehow um, a devout Maccabean Jew uh, decided to supplement what Isaiah had written and called himself Isaiah, and that his chapters were tacked on to the end of the real Isaiah's chapters. And then later on, a third Isaiah, a Trito-Isaiah. So you've got Isaiah, -Isaiah, Proto-Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, and Trito-Isaiah that somehow came together to create this, this book that we've been studying for the last 44 weeks. Well, all of that is garbage. All of that has nothing to do with the truth of Scripture. All right? These are theories that have been placed upon the Scripture by uh, folks that don't believe that God can predict the prophecy ahead of time. Uh, The whole point to prophecy is that prophecy is given ahead of time. That is what proves that it's prophecy. That's what it proves that God is who He says He is. And in every single one of these chapters, really from 40 through 48, in so many of these chapters, we have God taunting the fallen angels. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of hosts, is taunting Satan and the fallen angels and the demons, daring them to declare the end from the beginning, daring them to utter their own prophecies and prove him a liar, to prove that they can do what he can do when he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And he proves who he is by doing what only he can do. And so the whole point is is uh, declaring things ahead of time. And so the idea of naming Cyrus by name ahead of time bothers a lot of people. I don't know why it doesn't bother me at all. Back in chapter 7, he said, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Does that bother the same people? All right. To me, the idea of a pregnant virgin, that's pretty miraculous. That's, that's pretty extraordinary. And to announce it 700 years ahead of time is prophetic. And uh, so which is, which is harder, to uh, a pregnant virgin or to name a, a coming king of an empire that hasn't risen yet? Uh, the name of a king that's still two empires away. Remember, not even Babylon had risen when Isaiah was speaking. It was still Assyria was the dominant empire at the time. In any event, so we'll have that to look forward to. We'll wrap up this hour with a mention of Cyrus. And we won't do a ton on it because really it's the first several verses of chapter 45 that really detail all of the uh, messages related to Cyrus. And so you'll spot that as well in 45.1. And following, thus saith the Lord, to Cyrus his Messiah, To Cyrus, his Christ, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him. and, And all of that. Don't get me going. That'll be two weeks from today when we get into Isaiah 45. Next week's a special. Don't forget that. All right. So let me back up now. Verses 1 through 5, Jeshurun should not fear as the promises of Yahweh guarantee her millennial blessings. Remember the name YHWH. No vowels, just consonants. It is the tetragrammaton, the holiest name of Yahweh to the Jewish people. So holy, in fact, that they would not voice it out loud. When they would see Yahweh in their text, they would not vocalize the name Yahweh like I'm doing right now. See, I'm not an Old Testament superstitious Jew. I can say Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Doesn't bother me at all. But I'm going to be visiting a synagogue on a couple of Saturdays, and I'm going to be more careful when I get there, all right? I'm just going to listen a lot and hear what they say, and if they substitute Adonai for Yahweh, then I won't be shocked and surprised. In fact, I'll be expecting that, that that was the tradition and practice for for Israel. They would not vocalize the name. The name was too holy. So they would substitute Adonai in its place. They would say, my Lord, instead of saying Yahweh. All right, and so we have these points here. All right, as I mentioned, Jeshurun is a poetic name for Israel, very common of the Lord to give multiple names, particularly names of endurance. Maybe you've got a a, a particular pet name for someone that's dear to you. Maybe you've got a a, a sweetie-deedy doodle-dums or whatever you may have for whatever adult or child may be eligible for a name of that nature. God has very special names for the objects of his affection, and Yeshurun speaks of Israel under blessing, Israel under maximum uh, peace and tranquillity and and blessing it 's unfortunate that they uh, all too often, like in deuteronomy, um, sometimes israel views themselves in a peace that God has not yet provided for them, and they fail the prosperity test. Sometimes jeshurun is used when God is judging Israel for living complacently in their wealth and in their prosperity, failing the prosperity test. Uh, Then jeshurun is unfortunately uh, addressed for that and uh, comes into judgment. Not so here in Isaiah, it is uh, Israel at peace, Israel in uh, security, because God is the one that has made it happen. And so they are secure. For the first time in thousands of years, the Jewish people will have nothing whatsoever to fear because Jesus Christ will be seated on David's throne and because he will be ruling with the rod of iron. Okay? I think uh, I won't take us to Deuteronomy 32 and Deuteronomy 33, but these were, well, yes I will, Deuteronomy 32 and 33, so we can see how these tie together. This is Moses getting ready to die, and uh, he's going to sing a song, he's going to pass things off, he's seen the Exodus generation die in the wilderness, he's seen the wilderness generation grow to the point now that they are ready to conquer the land, and he's handing things off to uh, Joshua, Joshua will lead them into the uh, promised land. But here's what we see. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. When you talk about how he took care of them, and uh, without reading the first 14 verses, you'll see peace and you'll see security and you'll see, um, you'll see this. The curds of cows and milk of flocks and the fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats. Everything is going great. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. The prosperity test. Israel and prosperity, and they fail. In fact, they fail throughout the entire Old Testament record. It's what makes the millennium so extraordinary. They will not fail in the millennial kingdom. A thousand years later, do you know what the faithful nation is going to be at the Gog Magog rebellion? It's going to be Israel going to be the Jewish people surrounded by all the Gentiles at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The one time that Jeshurun stays faithful is uh, the millennial kingdom of Israel. Verse 16 there of chapter 32 says, they made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread, okay? You've heard the idiom, Johnny, come lately, all right? Well, that's what we have here. We have phony gods come lately. We have these uh, fallen angels and demons posing as if they were real gods. And all they're doing is provoking the one true God to jealousy. And uh, different aspects there. Chapter 33, also of Deuteronomy, has two more references to Jeshurun, verse 5 and verse 26. Moses himself, viewed as a king, and uh, it's kind of an interesting use. He didn't sit on a throne, he didn't wear a crown, but he was a prophet, priest, and king in typology, bringing Israel out of, uh, out of Egypt. And so it says, Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. He was king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the peoples were gathered, the tribes of Israel together. And then we have the tribe-by-tribe blessing that uh, Moses, their king, gave them as he died. Finally, verse 26 of the same chapter, There is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and under his wings, underneath are the everlasting arms, as he drove out the enemy from before you, and said, destroy. All right? So there it is. The peace will come, but the peace will come with the military victory, with the defeat of Satan and Antichrist and all the Gentile armies in in the great tribulation of Israel. Peace will come. All right. Back to 44, Isaiah 44, 2. Thus says Yahweh, who made you, who formed you, who will help you. Now, last week, we saw some vocabulary for making and forming. We saw some vocabulary for the creator and the maker, or the fashioner, the one who fashions, and the one who creates. Here we have making and forming. We have two different terms that reference the craftsmanship of God as the potter, as, uh, as he molds us, as the clay. And he uses the language of pregnancy to do this. Who formed you from the womb. All right, God has been involved in Israel's life before there was an Israel. God was involved in Israel's life before anybody else could see what Israel looked like. When the baby's in the womb, before the days of sonograms, alright, right, when all you could see was a lump in a a, a mother growing larger, uh, God is at work, and God is working, He's molding, He's shaping, He's fashioning. He knows what He's doing. So that by the time the baby finally does arrive, woohoo! here's the baby, God's already been at work. God's the one who opens the womb. God's the one who closes the womb. God's the one who calls and designs and fashions. That's his sovereignty at work. This is true of each one of us individually as human beings, but it's also true of nations. It's true of those nations that have not yet been birthed. He knows the nations that are still in the womb. What's the nation that's going to follow the United States of America when we fall? For example, something to think about. We are not an eternal nation. Only Israel has eternal covenant promises. All right? Nations are birth and nations die. And God is faithful every step of the way. The only nation that has no eternal death is Israel. God's plan for Israel is from the womb. And I don't know, we could spend the whole hour on this. From the womb through birth. It's a terrible birth, by the way. It's a terrible, lonely birth through innocent childhood, through vulnerable puberty. We've got scriptures that address all of this. God uses every facet of life to describe the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God's plan for Israel is from the womb, through a terrible birth, innocent childhood, vulnerable puberty, pure marriage, tragic adultery. A lot of this comes out of Ezekiel 16, some of it from Isaiah Some of it from Hosea. Banishment, the banishment of divorce. You want to know why God hates divorce as much as he hates divorce? Read how he has to deal with his covenant nation. All right, And the purpose for marriage, what marriage is supposed to communicate. But he issues, and we'll see this uh, six weeks from now, plus the bonus week, so seven weeks from now. Six chapters from now, we'll see the certificate of divorce. In Isaiah chapter 50. Also, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2, verses 1 through 13. Do you know what the prophet Hosea was about? The prophet Hosea had to marry a harlot, and then he had to take her back. <laughs> All right? Talk about uh, a faithful prophet and an uh, unpleasant work assignment. Likewise, God's plan for Israel doesn't end with a divorce. He puts the marriage back together, as only God can do. The restoration to marriage, Isaiah or his, uh, Ezekiel 16, verses 60 through 63, Hosea 2, 14 through 20. I even believe that there is a passage, and I couldn't find it, but talking about a restored virginity. And that's not humanly possible, but God promises Israel in such a way. I'm going to keep hunting for that for upcoming classes. I'm going to keep my eyes peeled for it because I think it's in Isaiah. I just couldn't find it this week. Restoration of marriage, as Hosea took her back, as Ezekiel speaks of. Also caring for her even into her old age. Even to her now, when a nation grows old, it's interesting, when a Gentile nation grows old, it's generally decrepit. It's generally um, ready to just keel over and die and be replaced by the next young nation about to be birthed. But when Israel grows old, it's described in a beautiful way, in beautiful, tender terms of the beautiful uh wisdom of of old age. And so uh, join me if you would, Let's, uh, not only do we see it here, in verse 2 and in verse 24 do we have the womb language, Isaiah 44, 24, that says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens, he goes on to discuss other things. Uh, it'll come up again in a couple more chapters, in chapter 46, 3, the idea of the womb Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age. There's old age in 46.4. I will be the same. Even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you, and I will bear you. I will deliver you. So to whom will you liken me? (laughs) Okay? Okay. Got that coming up in chapter 46. Ezekiel 16. Usually cautious about if there's children in the room, but we're safe this morning. Ezekiel 16. And you talk about a wonderful metaphor. You talk about something that communicates the way that God loves Israel. He describes it here as a uh, child, as a girl, as a young girl, as a young woman, and uh, the process here. Ezekiel 16. Uh, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, and uh, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God of Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. Okay? Are these insults? <laughs> Almost. Are these fighting words? It could be. All right. This is not very flattering. In other words, uh, they weren't birthed with any kind of a pedigree that humans would be impressed with. Okay? Not like the great Egyptian or Sumerian cultures or any of the great the Indus Valley culture or anything of the sort. Amorites and Hittites. But as for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. You might expect if this baby was wanted, if this was a precious birth, that there would be some attention paid to the birth of this child. All right? What didn't happen in her case, in Israel's case. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you to have compassion on you rather you were thrown out into the open field for you were abhorred on the day you were born and you know this was standard practice in the ancient world the the unwanted child was left for exposure was just thrown to the to the fields and uh He uses this culture, this practice of culture, the pagan culture, he uses to illustrate the nature of Israel's birth as a nation. Remember, it was in hardship. They were brought out of Egypt, and they had 40 years in the wilderness, birthed as a nation in in, in terrible earthly circumstances. So when I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were still in your blood, live, yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Live. This child lived by the grace and the mercy of God. And I think it's extraordinary what our nation does, what the neonatal medical technology is like in our nation. We have children that live that couldn't live had they been born in so many other nations on this earth. I find that slightly, well, no, I find it incredibly amazing that he's blessed us with that technology. And it's the flip side of the other side of the ugliness of what our nation's been doing since 1973 in the uh, unrestrained child sacrifice. In any event, back to this text. I made you, uh, so the, the the baby grows up, and guess what? It's a girl, and she grows. I made you numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. The girl reaches a particular age, and now she's wearing dress, uh, dresses and makeup and perfume and Things that she didn't used to wear back when life was simpler, all right? And uh, hmm, your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. That's a problem, okay? When you're four and five and whatever, then you can be a naked little girl running around. But when you reach this age, no, no, we got to, we got to, there's, there's a change, okay? Now you got to wear something else. And I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you are at the time for love. In other words, she's now uh, going through puberty. She's having her menstrual activity, and she's of marriageable age, okay? Hebrew can be blunt, and it's kind of a good way. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness, said, all right, you're not the little girl anymore, you're marriageable age, and I am going to marry you. Yahweh takes Israel as his Wife, you are mine. I uh, covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. What in the world is marriage anyway but a covenant, a lifelong covenant till death us do part? Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil, clothed you with embroidered cloth. This is the pure marriage that we see here. Adorn you with ornaments. Put bracelets on your hands, a necklace around your neck. There's also a nose ring here in verse 12. Put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. Man, wouldn't it be great if we could just end this chapter with verse 14? <laughs> and they lived happily ever after, like a Disney movie. Well, No. You trusted in your beauty and you played of a harlot. See, and this is what Israel does as a nation. And who can she blame? What did he not do for her? What kind of deadbeat husband was the Lord anyway? None. The absolute perfect husband of this nation. Everything that could be done was done. And so she played the harlot. And again, there's blunt language, and again, there's uh, different things, all right? And notice uh, there's going to be bosoms fondled, there's going to be a lot of other stuff. Like I say, read this with teenagers and uh, encourage them to learn the lessons that the metaphor communicates. Of course, with this then comes child sacrifice, because all the fornication produces consequences, and well, they need to be sacrificed. And you see that they get thrown to the idols and burned and all the rest of this. All right, well, don't want to take the whole hour on that. He banishes her. He issues a decree of divorce. Ezekiel, uh, let's stay in chapter 16, verses 35 and following. Therefore, a harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out, your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols because of the blood of your sons, which you gave to the idols, therefore behold, and uh, judgment is coming. I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even those whom you loved, and all those whom you hated. Why do you sleep with somebody you hate? (laughs) How destroyed is your soul that you're so involved in this rampant fornication and and, uh, even when you're having fun, you're hating it. And even when you're hating it, you won't stop having the fun you think you're having. Oh, there's so much here. He actually issues a certificate of divorce. Isaiah chapter 50 speaks of this. Jeremiah chapter 3 speaks of this. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? And he did. He sells them. That's what the great tribulation is all about, by the way. Until he brings them back. He redeems them. He purchases them back. He takes his faithless bride and he restores her. Wow. Talk about grace. (laughs) All right. And so God's plan for Israel spans all of this. Every phase of a girl's life. From birth to puberty to marriage. Shouldn't have to go through the adultery divorce routine. But then restoration, what a grace. And then caring for her even to her old age. And I like that. All right. The third thing I glean out of these first five verses. Jewish heritage will be preeminent. No more lying about your race. No more lying about who you are. No more hiding your Jewish race away and pl- pl- uh, claiming that you're Christian or claiming that you're Catholic or whatever other sort of thing. They will wear it as a badge of honor. This one will say, I am the Lord's. That one will call on the name of Jacob or will be called by the name Jacob. Another will write on his hand belonging to the Lord. What a, what a fun tattoo that would be. okay? And will name Israel's name with honor. It will be the preeminent uh, heritage in the millennium. The name of Israel will be named with honor. In fact 10 gentiles will take the hem of one Jew. I won't turn there. We've gone several times to Zechariah chapter 8. I love those verses. Zechariah chapter 8 verses 20 through 23. Look those up when you get a chance and see how uh, esteemed the Jewish people will be in the in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Micah 4 verses 1 and 2 also addresses that the great pride that they will have to be Jews in the in the millennium. Deuteronomy 26 verses 17 through 19. But really, the bulk of this chapter comes in verses uh, 6 through 20. And that's what I want to spend the bulk of this hour on. Idolatry is at its core the confusion of creation and creator. Idolatry, when you boil it all down, idolatry rejects the creator and substitutes something in its place. Right? Either four-footed creatures or animals or trees or ourselves, fallen angels of whatever sort. We take God off His throne; we put something else there. That's idolatry, and it's ludicrous. And the language here is 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 just—I find it uh, some of the funniest scriptures of the whole Bible right here in this chapter. It's it's sarcastic as anything, dripping with the sarcasm, and I, I thrive on that. It's uh, it resonates with my sense of humor, I should say, and um, it's mocking, absolutely mocking, because the same wood that you've carved into this idol is the same wood that cooked your dinner, <laughs> right? And, and uh, it's, you burned it to make fire, to bake your bread, to eat dinner. And so what's the value in wood? Burning it, <laughs> okay? It, you can, it, can, it can heat you, it can warm you, it can keep you alive, you can burn it. You need to burn it to cook your food. But once you burn it to cook your food, what's left of the wood? ashes. And what we have in this chapter is we have coals and we have ashes and we have wood and we have uh, the language here that uh, I think spells it out in uh, really in a beautiful way. So let's take a look at Isaiah 44.6. And this might be a, a device we could use as well. If you've got a coworker or a friend or somebody in the pursuing idolatry, just highlight how useless it is. That's what scripture does. So thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. There is no God besides me. Every idol you invent is a phony. Who is like me? Dec- uh, uh, let him proclaim and declare. Remember, he's the one who proclaimed, who delivered. He's the one that announced. We saw that last week in the order that he did it in. Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Boy, there's a lot of doctrine in that verse. That goes back to the angelic earth. I think that goes back older than man, okay? More than, more than we can get into today, but there it is. From the time I established the ancient nation, let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. The problem is, is none of those idols are going to speak. <laughs> none of those idols can speak. They're wood, all right? And as skillfully as they've been carved, as, as beautifully as they've been crafted, and I've seen some great statues in my day, none of them spoke. None of them were alive. Okay? There's a man in Spokane, Washington, that took a log and turned it into Elijah the prophet. And I, it just, you know, it's huge, six foot tall this big log. And by the time he was done with it, Elijah the prophet was standing there, the staff in one hand and a bony finger pointing out. And you go, wow, that's, that's, that's absolutely incredible as a human carving creation. All right. But it's never spoken. <laughs> it's, a, it's a piece of wood still. As beautiful as you can craft it, it's a piece of wood. It doesn't speak. It doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. It doesn't preach the gospel of eternal life. And it will not sit on the throne of David to rule this world in the millennial kingdom. It is a piece of wood. Why am I going to pray to an idol? What's it going to do? So once again, here's the invitation. But make sure you give it in order. Don't miss a step. And once you've recounted all history from Alpha to now, also declare the things that are coming. Start with now and go forward to Omega. God's done it. Why can't these false gods do it? Why can't these idols do it? Let them them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Is there any other rock? I know of none. And That's a powerful statement right there. Use that in your apologetic ministry. Remember, God is omniscient. So if this is something he doesn't know about, what does that tell you? It means it doesn't exist. That you have to be omniscient to be an atheist. You have to be omniscient to know that there are no other gods anywhere in the universe. And any human being who says that there are no gods in the universe... Cannot make that statement truthfully without themselves first being omniscient. Any finite being with finite knowledge has to admit that outside the scope of what they know is a whole lot of what they don't know. So it's logically it's self-defeating. Any atheist is self-defeating, because to affirm atheism you are affirming omniscience, and if you are omniscient then you're the god you're, you yourself are the god that you're denying. Okay, see how that works? That's why the last two or three times that I've encountered atheists and they've told me to my face uh, that they were atheists, I just smile and say, wow, I don't believe in atheists. And it's, it's, I've done it three or four times now, and the most recent ones I've encountered, I love it every time. You get the most bizarre looks on their face because <laughs> you're staring right at them, right? And you say, I don't believe in atheists. Well, you're looking right at one. Well, I think you're looking at God everywhere throughout this creation you don't believe in God. I don't believe in atheists. Anyway, it's a different conversation. Now, let's look at these guys. <laughs> Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, okay? Every last one of them is living out his own personal Song of Solomon, his own personal uh, Ecclesiastes, right? They're all futile. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I didn't mean Song of Solomon, I meant Ecclesiastes. And their precious things are of no profit Of no profit. How does an idol profit? In fact, an idol doesn't profit anybody except the idol maker. Okay? It's big money in religion if you control the religion. Keep them under your thumb and run the shots. All right, all of them are futile. Their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? The craftsman's making money on the deal. And however much gold you donated to go into that idol, not all of it went into the idol. Okay, the craftsman's keeping his cut; he's making his share. Behold, all of his companions will be put to shame—not the craftsman's companions, the idol's companions. Because when this idol maker is done, guess what? He's got another order next week. He's got another order the week after that. He's—he's in the business to make idols. Okay, at least until Paul comes to town and puts him out of business. But that's. That's the New Testament. All right. All his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. All the idols ever made are still man-made. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to an eternity where nothing's man-made, okay? There's only one man-made thing in heaven, and thank God for that, all right? I'm looking forward to an eternity where that's the only thing that's man-made, So, they're put to shame. Uh, Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. And and see how the process works. Now, I don't understand a lot of this, but we can at least uh, read it, and then after class, one of you crafty people can explain it to me. First of all, in contrast to the eternal profitability of the Word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, idolatry is only profitable to the idol-maker... In contrast to the eternal, remember all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. You're here this morning to profit from the Word of God. You're going to walk out of here with treasure that lasts for all eternity, and we didn't charge you a nickel for it. Isn't that great? In contrast to the eternal profitability of the Word of God, where's the profit in idolatry? The only profit in idolatry is to the idol maker, because none of them make their they make their idols to no profit. Okay. Not, there's no non-profit prophet or however that works in the Old Testament. Okay? Balaam was the for-profit prophet of the, uh, of the wilderness wanderings. Idolatry is only profitable to the idol maker. Now, look at this. Verse 12. A man shapes iron into a cutting tool. Well, that's pretty handy. He'll be able to do more with it once it's shaped and forged as a cutting tool. Just a lump of iron ore isn't going to be as useful to him, right? So what does he do to this lump of iron? And he makes a tool out of it. Now it's useful. And before he gets too proud of how smart he is for doing this, he needs to remember he didn't make the iron, (laughs) right? He's taking the good iron that God gave him and he's molding it and shaping it into a tool, a cutting tool, and he does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. Sounds great. So he's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing, and he's got a strong arm. He can get it done until his arm gets tired. (laughs) Oh, okay. So things are going great halfway through verse 12, but then he gets hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes hungry. So, so much for the man-made idols, right? he takes a break, and he comes back, and he tries again. Everything man-made is going to be flawed because of the human weaknesses of who's making it. Another shapes wood. He extends the measuring line. He he outlines it with red chalk. Now, why does he have to measure? Gary Williams used to say, yeah, only amateurs measure. Okay? And then he realizes a mistake, and he says, oh, I'm going to measure next time. Okay? Because we're, we're, we make mistakes. So he outlines with red chalk. Why outline it with red chalk? So that you know where you're cutting, you make sure what you're doing before you do it. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass, makes it like a form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Okay? And if you don't carve it just right, then it's not going to sit. It's going to topple. And then that's not an impressive God that topples, so you make it where it sits. And by the way, making it where it sits is cheating because sitting is easier than standing. But he's not that good a carpenter, so he's going to have this one sit down. <laughs> okay? You see why this is just mocking these idol makers and the, the the stupidity of idolatry? It gets worse, okay? Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself. But notice, who put the cypress there? Who put the oak there? And even if he plants an oak, which he's about to do here, he plants a fir, okay, But it's the rain that makes it grow. Is he making the tree grow? Is he sending the rain? And then it becomes something for a man to burn. Okay, why is a forest useful? It's useful if you burn it. But not in a forest fire. Cut the tree down, take it home, chop it up, burn it in segments, keep it controlled. All right. It becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He makes a fire to bake his bread. That's useful. He also makes a god and worships it. That's stupid. (laughs) Okay. So why is this one burned to keep him warm and this one is carved to pray to as an idol? All right. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half, he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Aren't we pleased with what we do? But the rest of it, he makes into a god. And so you ask yourself, who's he cheating here? Why is he going half and half? If he didn't bother with all that idolatry, he could eat more. If he didn't need to eat so much, he could make more gods. (laughs) The whole thing is just kind of a fruitless exercise. But the rest of it he makes into a God, verse 17, his graven image. He falls down before it. He worships it. He also prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Now, you shake your head and say, well, what moron would do this? We all do this. Every time you and I go to any modern form of idolatry, we're doing exactly the same thing. We are worshiping something of our creation our perverted imagination, or anything else. They do not know, nor do they understand. See, our God knows what we need before we even ask. These guys, you ask, and they don't even know because they can't hear, they can't speak, they can't do anything. Even the idol worshippers too. They they become just as blind as the idols they create. He has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see, their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say... I've burned half of it in the fire, also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. <laughs> he feeds on ashes. You know, Why do you cook on coals? And I understand there's some that's open flame broiling and then there's some coal heat uh, cooking and, and I'm going to get in even more trouble if I try to describe my cooking to you as opposed to my craftsmanship. So I'll pass on that. He feeds on ashes. He feeds on ashes. Now you think about what God supplies, what God provides, and how it becomes useful to us. You know, a tree that's just sitting out there, okay, it looks nice. Provides some shade, I suppose. Animals can live there. Does me very little good until, you know, this is more useful to me than all the trees out front. Because this is the paper I'm reading from to teach this morning. All right, We craft it into something useful. But in so doing, we are consuming it, which is a biblically good thing. The spirit of this age tells us consumerism is bad. Okay? And we want to leave rivers in their pristine condition. We want to leave blah, 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 what God has blessed us with. We want to harness those rivers and get power. We want to harvest the forests. They grow back. It's renewable energy, right? All right, planting trees. Natural resources are for man's dominion, use, and benefit. That's why they are there. They were placed there for us. Natural resources are for man's dominion, use, and benefit. Now, it's not for abuse. And we we should be appropriate stewards of the resources. We shouldn't just, you know, destroy them senselessly. But we should harness them. Natural resources are for man's dominion, use, and benefit. But idolatry stupidly consumes half of what should otherwise benefit man. All religion does. Phony religion steals from humanity. Phony religion steals from humanity. And I'm not talking about the, well, of course, the pagans too, but how about the so-called Christian nations in the form and fashion of which is dominated by the Vatican, some of the poorest nations on earth, and they're sold out to the richest bank on earth. Why is that? Why is that? That the Vatican gets richer and richer and richer, and so many of these Roman Catholic-dominated countries are the poorest third world nations on on the globe. Why is that? What's the distinction between that and biblical Christianity? All right, well, that's a whole other sermon right there. <laughs> but think about it. What are we consuming? All the gold you poured on an idol should have gone to feeding your family, should have gone to blessing your children, should have gone to passing on a heritage, okay? The wood that you poured into your graven image, the wood that you poured into your totem pole or whatever else. Might as well have just chopped it up and used it for firewood. Cook your dinner with it. More useful than an idol sitting in your house. Idolatry consumes, and think about it, people are so busy pursuing idolatry and not profiting as God has designed us to profit. Well, there's a lot more. But we have a third section we want to get to. Redeemed Israel is to be marveled at by heaven and hell, mountain and forest. Heaven and hell, mountain and forest. And by the way, this requires the millennium. This cannot be the new heavens and new earth because after the millennium, the dimension of hell, hell itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire, sealed off. And in the thousand generations of the fullness of time, there is no more under the earth. After the the great white throne judgment, when the, the heavens and earth are destroyed by fire and the new heavens and new earth are made, we no longer have under the earth. We want to be very clear on that. This is significant beyond just what you're getting here this morning, all right? Right now, if we're going to talk about everything, if you want to think biblically in terms of existence, You have to talk about in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. There are three dimensions of existence. The dimension of righteousness and holiness where God's throne dwells. We call that heaven, right? The third heaven. We have the physical universe where earth is located. The physical material universe of our existence. And then we have hell. We have the underworld. We have what the Hebrews called Sheol, the realm of the departed spirits. Okay, Death and Hades under the earth. And uh, Philippians 3 is good for this. In the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. It's a formula that speaks of all existence. Okay? And the the, the aspects of up and down, they're useful. They're not literal, but they're useful. To think as the heavens are higher than the earth, or so are my ways higher than your ways. It's useful to think of heaven as up, but you can go that way forever and not get to heaven. Okay? And you can dig clear through to China or as deep as you want to go, you're not going to get to hell. You're not going to get to Sheol or Lake of Fire or anywhere else. Up and down are useful expressions as language of a combination, but we're talking about separate dimensions of existence. Now, after the great white throne, on the new heavens and new earth, there is no more under the earth. Ephesians 1.10 defines all things as in the heavens or on the earth. There is no more under the earth in the definition of all things according to Ephesians 1.10. The dispensation of the fullness of time is a whole different cosmology with no more under the earth because there is no more death, no more crying, no more pain. The first things have passed away. Only believers for the thousand generations of the uh, new heavens and new earth. Now, verses 21 through 28, as we look at it here, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. He's going to forget a lot of things. He's going to forget their sins, but he's not going to forget them. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist, mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The covenant nation has to return to Jesus Christ, whom they crucified. And they will. It will take tribulation to do it. Nothing else other than hell on earth will humble them to return to the Messiah that they crucified. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Why are they shouting? Why are they worshiping? I thought they would hate what's going on here. Well, it's a different kind of shout, <laughs> all right? And yet, it does say shout joyfully. You lower parts of the earth, okay? There is uh, actually, this gets us into some other things too related to Nephilim and uh, demons and some other things. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains. And, and O oh, forest, every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. To me, this is what the real environmental, uh, environmentalism ought to be about, okay? is what God is doing, how creation groans and creation is waiting for its revelation, for its redemption, as is described here and as is described in Romans chapter 8. All right, heaven and hell are called to worship. This is similar to many psalms. Heaven and hell are called to worship. Even the fallen angels and human unbelievers will bend the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now you and I will gladly do it. I won't have any problem bending the knee and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, I'll do that today, tomorrow, all day, every day. I have no problem with that. Trumpet sounds, we go to heaven. You bet. Philippians two, though, doesn't limit the knees and the tongues to the born again believers and to the elect angels. It says every. And if it's a knee, it's a knee. doesn't matter if it's a believer's knee or an unbeliever's knee or an angel's knee or every knee, every tongue. Maybe even the animals will start talking again like they did in theory. Philippians chapter 2. Okay? One thing's for sure, Eve was not scared by the, the talking serpent. I wonder how many more of those animals were Communicative. Philippians 2.10 says, well, here's the humility of Christ. I love this. Understand what Jesus did. Understand why we're here this morning. We're to have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. God the Son from eternity past was in perfect intimate fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from eternity past, God, very God, but He became flesh so that He could save you and me. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son came in the form of a man. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did he do that? Was there a point to that? Yes. So that you and I could have eternal life. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. In fact, his exaltation now is greater than he was entitled to from eternity past as God the Son. Because the God-man has accomplished what God the Son never did. What God the Father could not do. What God the Holy Spirit could not do. But the God-man did on the cross. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Just in case you're fuzzy on this every knee thing, it says, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every dimension of existence that's why the great white throne judgment, all of death and Hades are going to be delivered up. They're going to stand before the great white throne judgment. Everyone is resurrected so they can bend the knee and confess Jesus Christ is Lord and be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And there we see it, all right? Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Even mountains and forests. Mountains and forests reflect the creation of, which groans until the revelation of the sons of God. The creation groans. And so we have earthquakes and we have tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and lightning strikes and wild animals and uh, allergies. (laughs) I'm looking forward to cedar trees that don't pollinate the way these current cedar trees pollinate. We won't have allergens or allergies. At uh, in the millennial kingdom, in our resurrected body. Okay. Described here, we'll have more of this coming up in chapter 49, chapter 55, Romans 8. The whole creation is groaning and waiting for us. <clears throat> the revelation of the sons of God means that the glorified son of God, Jesus Christ, will be seated on his throne. Satanic prophecy is exposed as utter folly, verses 24 through 26. It's ridiculous, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making making fools out of diviners. You know, have you ever study Islamic eschatology? Do you know what the Madi, the Mahdi is about—the coming Mahdi of the of the Muslims? They've really twisted things around so that uh, Muslims are be looking for Antichrist and think he's the hero, look for Christ and think he's the villain. But that's uh, all stupid anyway, because. God's going to cause all of this idolatry, the boasting of the uh, the omens of the boasters will fail. But he's going to confirm the word of his servant. And then God picks his perfect servants with incomparable wisdom. God picks his perfect servants with incomparable wisdom. Who in the world would have ever expected that a uh, a man with a Persian father and a Median mother, um, Cyrus, was going to unite the Persians and the Medes together and that the united Persians and Medes would become as powerful as they would. But God knows what he is doing and he picks servants from sometimes wherever. And we didn't see that coming. Satan didn't see that coming. We'll have more to say about Cyrus when we come back and deal with chapter uh, 45. I'm just out of time. God picks his perfect servants with incomparable wisdom. So keep in mind, if you don't know, if you're looking for something, you're looking for the perfect job, the perfect employer, or the perfect husband, or the perfect whatever, all right? Quit looking for the perfect whatever. Start looking for what God's providing. And what God, God's provision is what's perfect, all right? And if it comes from somewhere you didn't expect it, well, that's how God works, all right? But trust that it's him. Trust that he's the one that knows what he's doing, and then uh, be thankful. Even if it's uh, somebody like Cyrus. Goodness. Why in the world's a Cyrus anyway? That's not a Hebrew word. Like I say, we'll have more to say about Cyrus. His shepherd. See how he's called shepherd? And he's called Messiah called Shepherd at the end of chapter 44 and Messiah at the start of chapter 45. So if you ever do a study on Jesus Christ as the good shepherd, probably ought to include something in the Old Testament from Cyrus, okay? A lot of doctrine here. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this prophet, the prophet Isaiah, Father. Talk about men of whom the world is not worthy. And uh, the scripture doesn't tell us how he died, Father, but the Jewish traditions are pretty unanimous that uh, he was so hated they cut him in two, that he was sawn in two. And yet, Father, he faithfully proclaimed the glories of your Son. He proclaimed the first Advent glories that the virgin would conceive and bear a child. He proclaimed the second Advent glories of the conqueror. Father, we're looking forward to your Son returning. We're thankful for the eternal life we have in him. Father, I thank you for the work that he accomplished on the cross. There was so much that he did. And Father, uh, I just thank you too that, that uh, anybody that's sitting here today that maybe didn't understand what this gospel was about could hear this passage, could hear this message. And Father, that, that so many passages of Scripture that speak of your son and what he accomplished on our behalf, I ask that this might be the day that, uh, that an unbeliever comes to faith in Christ. That, uh, that someone passes from darkness into light. Father, I thank you for what your Savior did. He uh, didn't need to for himself. He needed to for us. He, um, he bore our sorrow. And I thank you for that, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.